vowed after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great day, great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. All right, so what we see here is what? Verse 28 and 29. What's God going to do? Okay. What is uh, distinct about the way that God has poured out His Spirit up to this point, for the most part? Like, who has God poured out His Spirit on? Prophets. Okay, prophets. So, okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so Joel 2, 28 and 29, God is pouring out His Spirit on everyone, He says, uh, including uh, servants, including the old and the young alike, including sons and daughters. Now, if we look at the Old Testament, you see a handful of women who are prophetesses. Uh, Deborah comes to mind. You see a slightly larger number of men who are listed as prophets in the Old Testament. Um, you see examples of occasionally the kings would have the Spirit of the Lord come upon them. Um, you have sort of uh, a, a ministry of the Spirit on the guys who built the tabernacle, two guys who are skilled craftsmen overseeing all the rest who are building the tabernacle. Uh, same thing to a certain extent with Solomon's temple, as I recall. Uh, when David says in the Psalms, don't take your spirit from me, what is he talking about? Is he saying, I'm not going to be saved anymore, or what does he mean? Well, he's in a special position as a king, and he received a special anointing. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. He's saying, God, keep loving me and helping me through the tough times. He is. And alongside that, God has this special... So David has a relationship with God, as you're pointing out. Jonathan points out he's the king, so God's sort of giving him this sort of special blessing of help to be the king. When it says that God's spirit departs from Saul when he's king, it's not that Saul had a relationship with God and God took that away from him. It's that Saul was in a position as king. God's spirit was guiding and directing and helping him. Saul stubbornly refuses to obey, and so God takes away that special help. So when David says, don't take away your spirit from me, he's taking away sort of that anointing of the spirit, that special help of the spirit, not the presence of the Spirit that belongs to all people who believe. Anyway, so the sort of thing that is in view here is a special ministry of the Spirit. Uh, in the Old Testament, the ministries of the Spirit we're talking about, whether it be the craftsmen or the kings or the prophets, was a particular enabling by the Holy Spirit to do the ministry God had called them to, uh, often for just for a period of time and all those sorts of things. So what we see here in 28 and 29 is probably not, how do I put this? 
it's not what it talks about like in Ephesians where it says be filled with the Spirit, necessarily. Um, or at least it's not the 1 Corinthians passage where it says that you're baptized by one Spirit into one body. That's not something that comes and goes. That's something that just happens and then you have it because you're a part of God's people. Um, but that's getting away from this passage. So, pouring out of the Spirit, and then what's the other part in 30 to 32? Okay, there's judgment, signs in 30 to 31, but what does 32 bring it back to? Norma? Okay. Yeah, so we're getting into some of the things that we see in Revelation and all that. Other people that, yeah? So in 20 and 29, in my notes, it says that this is specifically for Israel. Okay. Just curious about that. I mean, it would make sense because if this is, you know, in during the tribulation, in the beginning aspect, beginning parts of it, and he's pouring his spirit out on uh, Israel, and then that leads to everything else happening. That would make sense. But verse 28 says all mankind, and Israel is not all mankind. So that's my hesitation with what the study note is saying. Jonathan? But in the note, I think it's indicating that in the context, we're talking about Israel, and we're going back to talking about Israel after mentioning all mankind will be blessed by the general pouring out of the Spirit, but then I think what Bob is pointing out maybe is that um, the people of Israel will prophesy to all mankind, all mankind will have the Spirit on them, but then Israel have a special extra item. Is that what we're looking at? I don't know if I would say that, Rob. <coughs> I have a lot of friends who will use that, the passage there about the dreams and visions as a way um, today because of Muslims who know Christ through their dreams and visions. I, I don't know what that relates to what we're talking about. Maybe it's when this was intended for them, but now I know people <coughs> that's going on. So okay, let's jump over to Acts 2 because I think it will help answer some of these questions because let's see how... I'm sorry? Alright, so one of the questions is, are, was he talking just to Israel, or is he talking to Israel about something that's going to happen beyond just the borders of Israel? So let's, we'll go to yeah, we're going to go to Acts chapter 2. And then Rob was raising the question of, some people will take and apply it to, they'll, some, they'll say something like, Muslims see a vision of Jesus, is this a sign of God's work in the end times tied into Joel 2? Right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, but Acts chapter 2, uh, someone, someone read for us 1 to 13, please, Jonathan. Uh, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. When suddenly there came from heaven noise like a violent rushing wind and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Oh, no, no, no. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, <coughs> Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and districts of Libya and around the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And 12 and 13 too, please. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. Okay, so, real quickly, what's happening here in Acts 2? And then we'll go on to Peter's interpretation of it. Yeah, they're speaking to, like, the people of Israel, the people of the Arabians. Okay, so let me, let me pause for just a second. So there were Jewish people gathered at the day of Pentecost, verse 5, from every nation under heaven. So there are people who are Jewish who are living in all these countries. So these are all Jewish people that, that they're hearing them speak to, but they're all speaking the languages of those countries. Yeah. Okay, so there's that. What, all, well, what else is going on? Holy Spirit. Devin? Okay, so chapter 1, uh, Jesus said to the disciples, wait until the Spirit comes, or God said to them. Okay, so there's that part of it. Okay, so they're speaking the mighty deeds of God. Okay, at least in this passage, the idea of speaking in tongues is known language, proclaiming God's mighty work as a testimony to people who need to believe in Jesus. Okay, so I think those elements are important. We see that elsewhere in the book of Acts. Uh, Jonathan, do you have anything else? Or? No, okay, we've covered it. Um, so, what's the response of the people in verse 12 and 13? Two main responses. Some people were like, amazed by God's work, and then others were kind of mocking. Yeah, so some people want to know what's going on. They, they want to believe, they want to understand, and then the others are just mocking and rejecting and saying they're drunk, which is clearly not a reasonable explanation, but they're just trying to Set that aside, what's going on. Okay, any you wanted to read when do 14 to 21? Thanks. Yep, you guys ready? Yep. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour all my spirit on you, all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall pro prophesy. How do you pronounce it? Prophesy, yeah. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I think we kind of saw it. We saw that in Joel, Joel too. 
Yeah. That's what we're looking at, right? So, all right. Thoughts on the relationship of what Peter's saying, what's happening in Acts 2 and Joel chapter 2? Norma? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's definitely true. Yep. Okay. And so then, at that time, God gave us, God commanded us as mission to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel of grace. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Devin. I think there's definitely an element of rebuke, yes. Okay, that's a good point. What else? Yeah. Yeah, I can see how it relates to when some people were saying, oh, they're just drunk. Peter was trying to bring them closer to God and remind, remind them of his, of his love to Jesus, of God's love to Jesus. Right. And even building on that, God had going to happen and God has kept his word now hundreds of years later. So if... If Joel is writing roughly parallel to, um, so Hosea was a parallel, at least five, six hundred years before this happens, right? Hundreds of years later. Now, now here's the question. A, a couple of questions that, that came to my mind as I read through this. Verse 18, Peter adds the phrase, and they shall prophesy. Okay? Verse... 21, he stops with, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved or will be delivered. But Joel 2.32 adds this part about on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Sandra? So that's a good question. What do you guys think? Braden? Okay, that's a really good question too, Jonathan. I was reading the notes in the, in the John MacArthur Study Bible. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, Evan? Uh, cheating and looking at the next verses. Yeah. Those days, but, and at that time, 
seen that until when it rain. Okay, have we seen wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, sun to darkness, moon to blood? Why does Peter, well, there was darkness at the point when Jesus was crucified, granted, but why would Peter quote that whole section, including the part about the wonders in the sky and the earth, and then stop right when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Sandra? Okay, so what is he saying? Oh, sorry, keep going. Yes. Right. So who's he talking to? Jews. And what does he say they have done, verse 22 and 23, that comes right after it in the book of Acts? Jesus you have killed. Repent and believe in him. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. All that at the end of his message. Because it says that they are listening to all of his words. He quotes from the Psalms, he quotes again from the Psalms, and then it says, God has made him Lord in Christ Jesus whom you crucified. So why does Peter only quote part of Joel? Because he's quoting Joel as support for what he's pointing them to, which is a warning that the coming of the Spirit is a warning that the last days are imminent. Turn to God and believe in him, right? So I would argue that in Joel, verses 30 and 31 have not yet happened. The signs in the heavens, we see that in the book of Revelation. I would say what comes right after in Joel chapter 3 has not yet happened. Um, but the reason Peter quotes it in that way, stops where he was, ties it in with the events in Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost, is he's calling them to repentance. Okay? Is Peter misusing the words of Joel by quoting them in this way? Any? I would say no, because they're, both of those words are proclaiming God's goodness and salvation through Jesus. Okay. Yeah, so is he pointing to the same things that Joel was anticipating? Yes. Yes. Now, we can argue about one of two things. Um, so... When we see historical events prophesied, right? Generally, if not always, I feel like we see a one-to-one -one kind of thing. What I mean by that is when it says Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus is a one-time event in a, single, in a single place, right? It's not Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and then 500 years later, Jesus is born in Bethlehem again, and another 1,000 years later, Jesus is born in Bethlehem again. That happens once, right? When we come to a passage like this, I think it gets a little bit trickier because it seems like the New Testament authors are selectively quoting parts of what's there, anticipating more or similar events to what's already been said. Brain, your question was whether this ties into like Revelation and things, is that right? Or if it was right then in, in Jesus' day. All right, so I don't... I don't know 100% if this is the best way to phrase it, but something that my grandpa would say when he was quoting from 2 Timothy 3, he says, in the last days, difficult times will come, and then it goes into all the things that describe the sinfulness of people. 
Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, ungrateful, disobedient to parents, like all that sort of thing, right? And then he would follow it up by saying, and we're some 2,000 years into the last days. So here's essentially, I think, what Joel is anticipating, what Peter is saying, the way that we should think about it. The coming of Jesus sets in motion all of the events of the last days, and the fact that it hasn't all happened doesn't mean that it won't happen, because Peter himself makes that point in 2 Peter 3. There's people who say, hey, he said he was coming back. Where's the promise of his coming? It's been a while. What's happened to that? Did he forget about it? So we're going to get to that later in 2 Peter. But here, I think the point is, because this has happened, Jesus could come back at any moment. So believe in him, turn to him, repent, and be ready. That's, I think, the point that he's driving at. So, again, is it important to think about the order of these events when they happen, try to kind of correlate between passages of Scripture? Yes. It was important for us to think about, was the locust plague in Joel 1 and 2, was that in their day or in a future day? And we were saying in their previous discussions, it was in their day. Is it important for us to think about when the stuff in Joel 3 happens? Yes. But at the end of the day, if we are completely wrong on the chart that we draw or the timeline that we map out, but we get the main point, which is repent and believe in Jesus and be ready for him to come back, we have understood what this is getting at. So that's the, that's the tension that we have to hold. Understand and think about it, but don't get so focused on the how does every last specific detail happen that we forget the main point, which is repent, believe in Jesus, be ready for him to come back. So to answer your, your questions, Sandra, go ahead. The people are being called to repentance? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, when we see the ones who are together in one place, the ones who are together in one place is probably the same ones in Acts one fifteen, where it says a gathering of about 120 people, which is a lot more than just the 11 disciples who are left and the one that they picked by lot, right? Um, so assuming that that's the same group that Luke is talking about in chapter 2, which is a reasonable assumption, then the ones on whom the Spirit is poured out is men and women, young and old, not just the apostles, but all of those who are faithful and still believing in Jesus after his, his death and his resurrection. So, the crowd said, what's going on? We're ignorant. Or the crowd said, they're drunk. We reject their message. And Peter says, don't be ignorant. Remember what the prophets have said. And Peter says, don't reject what's coming because that brings God's judgment on you. Does that, that all make sense? Okay. Norma, did you have a thought? Go ahead. Of the Lord 
things again and drive them into their enemies. And they keep killing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, think about that in the Old Testament. There, hundreds of years before this happens, had this opportunity to repent because of these locust plagues, refused to, ended up going through all the things of being carried away into exile. Then the people again in Jesus' day, the religious leaders aren't teaching them what the prophet said or what it means to follow God. They're ignorant again, they're sinful again, and they have this opportunity, and some of them turn, and many of them don't, and the, the sum total of it is that so many of them rejected the Messiah that um, there's only 120 people who are sort of around that gathered after Jesus' death, waiting and looking for him to come back. When all these people throughout the whole land... Now, do some of them trust Jesus later? Yes. I mean, Saul becomes Paul. He trusts Jesus later, right? But there's this very small number who actually believe when all of them had this opportunity to see Jesus coming as the Messiah. So... Just quick aside on that, I think we would do well to consider the fact that if God's own people who had all of this knowledge and all of this testimony coming before didn't pay attention to it, we're not immune to blindness toward what God is doing. So, In other words, we should watch out for unbelief and doubt and spiritual ignorance in our own lives, even as God's professing people, because here's God's own people who had all these things, all this truth, and still weren't following and, and looking for what he was going to do. All right, any other quick thoughts on the... Oh, let me go back to what Bob had said real quick. So the question of was this for Jewish people or was this only for, or was this for everybody or more than just Jewish people, the reason that I think that phrase on all man, Joel 2.28, is important is because the same thing that Peter points back to Joel about in Acts chapter 2 happens with Samaritans, the remnants of northern Israel intermarried with their Assyrian conquerors, and it happens with Gentiles. So we have it in Acts 2, we have it in Acts 8, we have it in Acts 10, the pouring out of the Spirit. So I think if in Joel 2 we say it's limited only to the people of Israel, now could we say something like, it's focused on the people of Israel or it's set in the context of the people of Israel looking out on what God's going to do for all people. Sure. But if we say it's only for the people of Israel, I'm not sure that it fits with what we see in Acts 8 and 10 in the way that Peter talked about it in his sermon in Acts 2. Jonathan. Yeah, in the study Bible notes, they were saying that the Spirit seems to be something that's poured out on all people, not just the Jews, but like you say, all my time, but Cornelius got a visit from an angel. We could call that a vision, right? I, I just... Bob? So, again, considering that he's saying all mankind, okay, I guess my question is, are you saying that Acts 2, here comes that word again, is a partial fulfillment 
of this? No, I think I would say Acts 2 is either one of two things is going on. Either Peter is using the word fulfilled the way that Matthew does in different ways. Um, hey, look at this. This is like what Joel's talking about. What actually this is going to be fulfilled, if you will, in the sense that we think use. So the New Testament authors use the word fulfill more loosely than we do. We tend to think of prophecy as like words in the Old Testament, specific event in the New Testament, or sense. And the way that the, Old, the New Testament authors look at it is, this thing in the Old Testament either is what I just described, a very specific, this wor- these words lead to this event. Sometimes they use it as, here's an analogy between these words and what's happening in this moment. Sometimes they use it as, hey, God is working in similar ways. Like it's even, like it's a really specific thing, or it's just like, a, hey, this reminds me of something that they said in the Old Testament. So, any of those is a legitimate possibility. If it is Peter saying, this is fulfilled in your eyes, the way that Jesus said, these words are fulfilled in your hearing when he reads from Isaiah and sits down among them, like that, I think, is really clear. That is fulfilled. Jesus came. Those words have happened. Right. The visions thing, I think, is open-ended enough that it's harder for us to say that the specific fulfillment has taken place. Like, there's a legitimate, I think, view that would say, this doesn't happen until the end times. I think we could also argue from the text, this happened in Peter's day at the day of Pentecost. It doesn't change the fact that there are visions and dreams here, there are visions and dreams in the last days, there are potentially visions and dreams in between, because of the work that God continues to do toward the end times, it ties in the question of miraculous gifts, right? Is God capable of revealing himself through miracles throughout the entirety of history? Yes. What do we see when we look at the explanation of the New Testament and the Old Testament? We see, in my view, four main periods in which that is intensely poured out. Moses versus the gods of Egypt, Elisha and Elijah, Elijah and Elisha in the days of great apostasy in Israel, Jesus and the apostles in the founding of the church, again, another time of apostasy among the people of Israel. Revelation talks about it happening again in the end times. Can it happen intermittently and less, in a less focused way in the intervening periods? Yes, and I think it does, which I think helps explain these conversations about here's a missionary who talks about encountering someone who's demon-possessed and God casts them out. I think that we could allow for the possibility of that while still saying the people who are doing that are not apostles and that's different from what we see in Jesus and the apostles and what we see in Revelation. Go ahead. So, with the understanding that we are now as Pentecost was the start of the last days. Yeah. We are now in the last days. Yes. Are you thinking that this is pointing to the last days in general, which what we're in now, or is this pointing to a more specific, uh, smaller time frame, which is still yet to come? I think from the point of Jesus coming onward, God's people have rightly thought of themselves as being themselves as being in the last days, even if the events of the end times have not all yet unfolded. Is that 
You want me to be more specific than well, that? I guess, again, I, my, my, my conclusion based on this and based on what has happened is that this is more specific. This is not simply in the last days these things are going to happen. It's a specific time. This is probably going to happen in a short time frame nearer to the end of the last days. Yeah, and I'm not disagreeing that that is, I think, a reasonable way of taking the text. I'm just saying I think we should also allow for the possibility that if this was, mm, if this was fulfilled in Peter's day, then there are parts of Joel 2 and 3 that have happened, there are parts that haven't, and so there's going to be successive days of visions and dreams between the coming of Jesus and the end of the thing. But wasn't Peter in quoting this saying this is still going to happen, not this is happening? Peter specifically says this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So what's the this? The this is the speaking forth God's words through the power of the Spirit. So... I'm not trying to be vague in what I'm saying. I'm saying there's basically two main possibilities. Either Joel 2 happens in Acts 2, or Joel 2 and Acts 2 are similar enough events that Peter says, hey, look, these are very similar, and this points to what's going to happen in the last day when Jesus comes. Does that, does that make sense? Specifically 28 and 29, correct? Correct. I would argue 30 and 31 haven't happened yet, and, P and Peter is just quoting them to get to the first phrase of 32 to make his point, call on the name of the Lord so you'll be saved. Is that Norma? I think I would say yes. I'm not sure if I'm entirely following your question, but I think I would say yes. Because we see this, this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. He exhorted them, be saved from this perverse generation. So yes. Peter is quoting from Joel, pointing to the events that are happening at Pentecost to call them to repentance. Those who turn to Jesus in repentance are then added to the church. So, what is? I think yes, yeah. I think I'm following what you're saying. So, Jonathan. So, when Joel was writing earlier, up through 27, he's talking about the locust plague and all this calamity that's happening to the people of Israel, but it has to be that he's pointing to a future event of the day of the Lord as well, because in verse 28, it will come about after this. He's 
pointing back to the verses that you just talked about. So I don't think that very much, if any, of that fulfillment came immediately about the uh, pouring out of the Spirit and the dreams and the visions. So that would indicate to me that the earlier verses were talking about a kind of a concept of the day of the Lord, like Bob talked about a partial fulfillment. So we're, we're, we're going forward to, like, perhaps the tribulation. I guess I'm not a huge fan of the phrase partial fulfillment because it sounds like God didn't finish the work that he started. I would prefer to think of it in the terms of locust plague in Joel's day is a warning to the people that there is a final day of judgment coming. And we would describe that final judgment as the day of the Lord. And going back to the parallel we talked about before about Antichrists versus the Antichrist, there are periods of judgment that God unfolds before the final judgment that look to the final judgment, are warnings of the final judgment. They're like like when there's an earthquake, there's those, so those building waves of destruction before the thing hits, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's the parallel with what's happening. The locust plague is one of those precursors to the huge earthquake. So it's not a part of the film, it's like a sign. Sure. Something like that, yeah. Now, there are people who will say that there are many days of the Lord. I would think, I tend to think that the day of the Lord is what happens in the end times, but there are things that are described as being like the day of the Lord in Old Testament times because there are these initial phases of judgment pointing to that. They're like a day of the Lord, as opposed to being the day of the Lord. They're types. <laughs> That's what they are. No. Again, again, here's the thing. Like, well, it's really easy, I think, for us to get super focused on the analysis of the details. And what I want us to keep pointing to and driving at is Joel is saying, hey, why are you starving and the land covered with locusts? Your starving land is covered with locusts because you're sinning. What's the solution to that? Turn to God and repent. In Peter's day, you just killed the Messiah. What's the solution to that? Repent and turn to Jesus because remember your history and God's judgment unfolded when you disobeyed. Anticipate what's coming, God's judgment on all those who disobey. So don't be stubborn in disobedience, but repent and turn to the Lord. So again, yes. Should we try to understand how these things fit together? Yes. Um, again, I think, the, uh, so this ties into our statement of faith, right? Why does our statement of faith say that we need to, that all Christians need to hold to this idea that Jesus is coming back because the scripture is very clear on that. But I think there should be a room for difference of opinion. If, you, if someone says, I am convinced that the day of the Lord is multiple events culminating in the end times, and someone else says the day of the Lord is only the end times, can both of those people go to the same church and be looking forward to the return of Christ? Yes, because neither of us is saying those judgments in the Old Testament didn't happen. Neither of us is saying the judgment of final day of judgment isn't happening. We're arguing about which labels to put on which part of it. Right? Does that make sense? Same thing with what Bob was pointing about, about how is Joel, how is Peter quoting Joel? Is Peter quoting Joel, this is happening, Acts 2, A.D. 33? Or is Peter quoting Joel saying, Acts 2, A.D. 33 reminds me of what Joel said will happen in A.D. 4000, or whatever, 
at the end of the day, it doesn't make a practical difference to our response, which is we need to repent. That, that's the point that I'm trying to get across. Um, Sandra, real quick, and then we got to wrap up. Okay, if it comes back, let me know. But um, So, to wrap up what we've been looking at, Joel 2 is saying, despite this judgment, there is hope. You guys have had your land wiped out by a plague of insects because of stubborn disobedience, and yet there is hope because there is a day when God has still not abandoned His faithfulness despite your disobedience. He's going to pour out His Spirit again. He's going to do amazing things that are cataclysmic events in history, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's the conclusion of that? Call on the name of the Lord. And that's, I think, the takeaway from the tail end of Joel 2, the takeaway from Acts 2. How do we know that that's the point? Because what's the response of the people to Peter's message? What must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent, be baptized to show that you mean the repentance, and God will give you salvation and pour out his spirit on you and all of these things. Okay, Sandra, real quick. Mm. Really short answer would be there were three major offices in Old Testament Israel. There was the king who ruled, there was the priest who ministered before God, and there was the prophet who proclaimed God's word. Jesus does all three in himself, and there is perhaps some sense in which we are called to do all three. Not as much the king part except as subordinate to Christ. For that matter, all three of them. We fulfill those roles in that we proclaim God's word, we serve before God. So we proclaim God's word, um, tell people the gospel. We serve before God, Romans 12, serve as a living sacrifice. Uh, this is your priestly service, if we want to translate. You could literally translate it that way. And then the third thing, we will rule with Christ, but only as his under-representatives, or whatever phrase you want to use, because he's the king, we are just sharing in his reign. So, hopefully that answers your question. All right, let's wrap up there for right now, because we've got to go to this morning service. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these great truths. We pray for um, understanding as we look at your word. Help us to seek to understand both the details, but in the midst of that, not to lose sight of the main point that we ought to, to the extent that we are bound in sin or struggling with sin, that we ought to, if we've never turned to you, turn to you for the first time, if we have turned to you, that we would continue to submit ourselves to you, uh, continue to turn away from sin, continue to look forward to the day in which you come back, 
that we would always be ready for that moment, not knowing exactly when it will come, but knowing that it could come at any moment. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.